you would open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 11, that is where we will be this morning. Looking through the next several chapters in our chronological study of the Lord's earthly life, I found that much of the material that's contained in these next few chapters has already been expounded upon. We've already discussed it earlier in our Life of Christ study. But it's obviously very important material, or I don't think the Holy Spirit would have had two gospel writers record much of this material. One early in the Lord's ministry, which was primarily Matthew, because a lot of the material we'll be looking at was recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And the other gospel writer being Luke, recording it again later on in the Lord's ministry, because as you know, we're toward the end of his earthly ministry here. However, because of the fact that we did cover in a great deal of detail, I mean we spent a whole year on the Sermon on the Mount, because we did cover these things in a lot of detail, and what I'm going to do this morning is just skim through the next several chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel, and we're only going to mention in brief those things that we've already discussed and highlight primarily the parables and the teaching which is new, which we've never heard the Lord utter before. Now, although there are six or some say seven parables contained in these two chapters, there's only really three of them which are new. And although there is a great deal of teaching by our Lord, the only new material not previously studied is found in his six woes and his five warnings. And even in those woes and in those warnings, uh, we are going to find matters and principles and truths which we have already discussed on more than one occasion. The portion which will constitute our next two lessons, then, is from Luke chapter 11 and chapter 12, and today our focus of attention will be on chapter 11. Next week we'll look at chapter 12, the five warnings. Today is entitled, The Six Woes. Our outline, first of all, we'll look at a review of former teaching, and secondly, a rebuke of Pharisaic traditionalism, and we'll begin by very quickly, you see there's a lot of things to cover there. Normally that would probably take me a year to cover, but because we've already covered it, we're going to do it very, very quickly, going through all those parts under a review of former teaching. And we'll primarily stress the one new parable that we find under that section, and that is the parable of the importunate friend. Okay, so let's begin by looking at Luke 11. I'm going to read, first of all, verses 1 to 4. We'll look at a perfect prayer pattern. It says, And it came to pass that as he, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this is a model prayer. It's not a model to pray, necessarily. 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with praying this prayer as it is. But if you just pray it and you're not even thinking about the words, you know, he didn't really give it to us for that. He gave it to us so that it would be a model for our own prayers. It's a, it's a prayer pattern which we are to follow. You know, we're to, to praise God first, you know, and ask for forgiveness and give our petition, petitions, etc. But because I really couldn't do a study of this prayer justice if I tried to squeeze it in in our short time this morning, and because of the fact that we have already discussed this prayer over, you know, when it was given to us in Matthew 6, um, in two hour lessons, we spent two whole lessons uh, detailing and st- talking about that prayer. I'm going to. I'm not going to try to teach on it this morning. So if you missed it when we did discuss the Lord's Prayer, which should be better called what? The Disciples' Prayer. It's a. It's a prayer for you and I, for the Lord's followers. It's really not a prayer for Him. So when we call it the Lord's Prayer, it's really not correct to use that term because He would never have prayed this prayer Himself because He didn't have any sins to ask to be forgiven. It's really the disi- a Disciples' Prayer. But if you, if you miss that, go ahead and pick up the, um, the tapes or, or get the book where we did discuss it. Because right now I'm going to just go and on to talk about the parable of the importunate friend because this is something new. This is the first time we've come to this parable. He never did teach this parable, at least where it was recorded in Scripture before. It's the 18th recorded parable in our Life of Christ study. Uh, And it is only found in Luke's gospel. So let's go ahead and look at it. It continues on with the subject of prayer. And actually in this parable, the Lord is teaching his disciples about the importance to be the importance of being persistent in our prayers. So let's look at verses five to eight, the parable of the importunate, not unfortunate, but the importunate friend. Importunity is another word for being persistent okay so this is the parable of the persistent friend it says and he verse 5 and he said unto them which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him friend lend me three loaves i'll tell you if i was somebody's friend i'd never go to their house at midnight and ask them for three loaves of bread would you (laughs) was a different time a different culture all right, it says, for a friend of mine, this is why he had to go to the friend's house to ask for three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. All right. The parable of the importunate friend. The basic teaching of this parable is this. A man has a sudden, unexpected visitor arrive at his home at midnight, and he has no bread to give this visitor. Therefore, he goes over to his neighbor's house, who is supposed to be his friend, and he asks his friend to loan him some bread, to give him some bread. Um, But the friend, because the hour is so late, and because of the inconvenience of the situation for him and his sleeping family, says what? No. He says, I know. Pretty strongly, he says no. However, because of the importunate Fortunate pleading of the asking man, his neighbor, his friend, finally gives in 
and he gives him all the bread that he needs. Now, the word importunity means stubborn persistence, almost shameless persistence. Now, there are three men in this account, and to make it easier for us to talk about them, I'm going to call them the hungry man. He's the midnight visitor, and then we have the host, who is the intercessory man, and then we have the bread man. So they're, bread, they're man number one, man number two, man number three. We have the hungry man, we have the host man, and we have the huffy man, if you'd rather remember it that way. Now, there are two parables that the Lord Jesus gave during his earthly ministry um, to instruct and to encourage us to be persistent in our prayer lives. And this is the first of those two parables. The other one we won't get to until we get to Luke chapter 18, but the other one is the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. This parable right here teaches about persistence on the behalf of others. So in other words, for us to be persistent in our intercessory prayers for other people. Whereas the widow parable teaches us about being persistent in our prayers for ourselves. Now as we break this parable down a little bit, the first thing that might surprise us living in our culture today is that the hungry man man number one the midnight visitor would arrive at such a late hour at his friend's house this would be considered rude today in our culture unless the person had called ahead to say first of all that he was coming because this guy didn't expect him he didn't even know he was coming somebody arrived at your house as a visitor and a guest was going to stay at your house and they didn't even tell you they were coming that'd be considered rude and um, if you did know they were coming and they were going to be that late at least they should have called ahead and explained to you why they were going to arrive at such a late hour however this wasn't you know we have to put this parable in the culture of the day and this wasn't the case back in those days in the lord's day such arrivals at late hours were not nearly as unusual as they would be today in hot countries, you see, it was often the, uh, customary for people to travel by night. A lot of us like to travel. Sometimes I like to travel at night, especially in the summer, because the sun is down and it's cooler. But they would travel more by night when it was hot than when it was cool. Furthermore, guess what? There was no way for them to call ahead. <laughs> Back in those days, can you believe that people could even function without cell phones? <laughs> but they didn't have cell phones, and they could, didn't even have email, and they couldn't even text message. <laughs> oh, those poor people. So they could, you know, there was no way to tell his friend that he was uh, coming and that he was going to be there late. Well, another thing that needs some explanation is why the big crisis. You know, what in the world is a big deal about giving this hungry man, this midnight visitor, he might not even have been hungry, but why, why did the host feel it so Im important that he get him some bread. Well, it was a matter of great importance, almost like a sacred duty to people in the East to extend hospitality to a visitor in their home. I guess that's why Martha got so bent out of shape. It was a big deal. Hospitality in this situation involved more than just providing a visitor with a bed to sleep in. It also, in, it also involved offering them food to eat. So if you had a visitor, immediately you needed to put food in front of them. And to fail to meet... The requirements of Mideastern hospitality was considered a great offense. To the host, man number two, the intercessory man, this was a midnight crisis of sorts, we could say. He had a midnight visitor and he had no bread to give them. Do you know what 
do you know what? We all, sooner or later, guaranteed, we all have what we could call midnight crises that come into our lives. And they are best met with fervent, earnest, persistent prayer. God is not merely a God of the daytime, is he? He's not merely a God of help in times of sunshine. But he has the best opportunities to show himself strong in the storms of the darkest night. Now, the request for, the, for bread by man number two, the host man, was an unselfish request because he was not requiring the bread for himself, was he? He didn't wake up at midnight and have the munchies and just had to have some bread. <laughs> he, was, he was requesting the bread on behalf of the hungry man, man number one, his guest. Why would he not have had some bread in his own home, we might ask? Well, number one, because he wasn't a Martha and his cupboards weren't always full of food. But the answer is obviously because his household had eaten up all the bread that previous day, not knowing that a guest would arrive in the middle of the night. And, you see, new bread would not be made until the next day. Back then, they made their bread daily. Give us this day our daily bread. So it was a basic need that he was asking for, not for himself, but for his friend. And it was a basic need. He didn't go over to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night and ask for a luxury like, would you please give me a bowl full of strawberries with sugar on it? He was asking for a basic need, just bread. And he asked specifically for how many loaves of bread? Three loaves of bread. And that wasn't asking for abundance. That sounds like an abundance to us, but their loaves were very small. So he's asking for three small loaves of bread. However, when the intercessory host man... That's man number two. Um, Knocked on the door of the bread man, man number three, to intercede on behalf of his uh, weary, hungry, midnight visitor, man number one. He didn't get a very promising reply. The man was rather huffy. This was supposed to be his friend, but he was pretty huffy. His, His neighbor friend, you see, was already in bed. Now, that would be expected at midnight that he was in bed. They would go to bed early. They'd go to bed when the sun went down. So he'd been in bed for a while. And to get up and light a lamp, he couldn't just turn on the switch, you know, on the wall. He had to actually light a lamp and then unlock his door. And I read that eastern locks were very uh, difficult to unlock. I mean, it was a big, you know, bolts and all kinds of things. So, and, and then, you know, for him not only to get up, to light a lamp, to um, unlock his door and get the bread, in, in doing all that, who would be awake, awakened? His, his whole house, his whole household, his family. And, and uh, homes of the common people were generally very small, often one room. And that one room was a living area by day, and then they would convert it into a bedroom by night, and all the family would sleep together. Real comfy, cozy, right? That's what they did. And since this man, we are told, had children in his bed with him, how many of your children sleep with you? Don't admit it, but you know it's true, don't you? (laughs) Especially if you have little children. Because these children were in the bed with him, we know that they were little children. They were smaller children. And what happens if your child, little child, gets awakened in the middle of the night? It is not always that easy to get them back to sleep, is it? So we can understand, to an extent, uh, this man's attitude. Although we have to admit, 
If he was this guy's friend, I don't think he was too sweet about it, and I certainly don't think he was doing the love thy neighbor as thyself thing here. Because essentially what he said was like he put out a big do not disturb sign on the front of his house. When he answered from within the house, now he didn't go to the door and open it. He answered, you know, I guess it could hear through the wall. He answered the man and he said, trouble me not, which literally in the Greek means stop furnishing troubles to me. <laughs> the door is now shut and my children are with me, in, with me in bed and I cannot rise and give thee. He was telling this man... His, supposedly his friend, go away and leave me alone. I don't care about your troubles right now at this late and inconvenient hour. Now, in teaching perseverance in our prayers, the Lord was conditioning his disciples, his followers, and you and I, for what might seem to be shut doors and rough refusals at times. When you're praying sometimes, do you feel like, you're beating against a shut door and you're getting some really rough refusals into your prayers like why in the world doesn't he just say yes and this may seem to be the case a lot of times when we first come to God with our prayer requests but we are not as we are taught in this parable we're not to let a refusal keep us from being persistent and persistent and keep on asking keep on knocking keep on seeking and pursuing the answer even if the refusal seems rather harsh remember how harsh jesus seemed to be to that syrophoenician woman i don't think we i mean we never heard jesus sound so rough as he did with her she came to him interceding on the behalf of her demonically possessed daughter that was back in Mark 7:26. We've already covered it. If you if you missed it, you can get the tapes or whatever. But it certainly sounded like a shut door and a rough answer when he said to her, "I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And she was not Jewish. She was a Syrophoenician. She was a Gentile. She was a Greek woman. But what did she do with that shut door? I mean, that door looked like it slammed right in her face. What did she do? She kept on. She was persistent. And then it sounded like a second shut door, a rough, tough shut door, when he then went on to say to her that it was not meat or not good for him to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. I don't know if you weren't here, you'd think, wow, Jesus said that, and we explained all that. But anyway, that's pretty rough and tough. But what did she do, ladies? She persisted. She kept on asking he was putting what he really was doing was putting her faith to the test faith needs to be subjected to some rough tough situations in order for it to develop in strength did hers develop you remember her she was the only one jesus ever commended for having great faith he stretched her faith in that process when the lord refuses to answer our prayers and here we're primarily talking about intercessory prayers, prayers on the behalf of others. And the refusal may seem to be harsh and even cruel, as it must have been to that woman. It doesn't mean that God is unwilling to answer your prayer or that he just is not interested in your problem or in the one you are interceding for as this hostile bread man was he was indifferent about his friend's problem and his midnight visitor's problem doesn't mean that 
when God doesn't answer our prayers. doesn't mean he's disinterested. It just may well mean that he is trying to stretch your faith so that it will be great faith, just like the Syrophoenician woman. You know, if he answered all of our prayers immediately, we'd almost take him, we would take him for granted. Like he was some kind of a genie in a, in a lamp that we could rub and ask and we'd get our answers right away. But when he doesn't answer right away, uh, it really does stretch our faith. All right, we may have to pray many closed doors open in our Christian experience. And the only way to open closed doors is to be persistent, persistent, persistent in our prayer lives. Many shut and many locked doors are, are stubborn and they're slow to open. And that, so that was an obstacle, the shut door, the locked door. Another obstacle was the sleeping family. Um, and, and there are a lot of people. Have you noticed there's a lot of people that are sleeping out there in the world? And we have to keep on knocking and knocking and sometimes pounding through our intercession to wake them up. There's a lot of quote-unquote Christians who are sleeping and need to be waked up. So sometimes we have to uh, overcome a lot of difficulties. We have to climb over a lot of, of um, obstacles that are put in our, in our way. And if, if we quit when the first obstacle comes along, we certainly won't pray very long, will we? Oh, well, that was a shut door. I don't know about you, but if I was at my neighbor's door, uh, Joy, <laughs> you're my neighbor, and I asked you for bread at midnight and you said, get out of here, leave me alone, I don't think I'd keep persisting. Would you? I'd say, oh, well, that was, I'll go, I'll go over to Kathy's. <laughs> Maybe she'll be a little nicer. <laughs> but uh, we shouldn't quit. We shouldn't quit. Persistent prayer is not going to be easy. Have you found that out? It sure isn't easy. You know the tendency is to just quit. Well, he must have answered that. No, so forget that. Um, because being refused over and over and over and over again is the hardest opposition of all. It really is. And we can generally, as I said, we can generally get over one refusal, but to have sometimes years and years and years of being refused, and sometimes even with a great deal of force, sometimes maybe even by those we're interceding for, it can get difficult to keep on asking. But delays, God's delays and God's obstacles, and sometimes, you know, he purposely... Like with Lazarus, that was a purposeful delay, wasn't it? Four days dead. His delays and the obstacles that sometimes he allows, well, he always allows them to be put in our way, are not necessarily denials. I wrote a poem once, I think it's called Delays Are Not Denials. Don't doesn't always have to mean they're denials. And this parable was given along with the one about the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And the example of the Syrophoenician woman and other examples in the scripture as well. Think about Abraham. Wasn't he very persistent in prayer when he was be, uh, interceding on behalf of Lot and, and the city of Sodom? And then there's another example I think about Jacob. Jacob who wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord and he wouldn't quit until the angel would bless him. The angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. That's persistence in prayer. Lord, I won't let go. I won't quit asking until you bless me. 
these these examples in the scripture are given to us to encourage us to do exactly that. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And that is what the intercessory man of this parable did. He kept on asking and he kept literally knocking at the door. And finally, not because he was the bread man's friend, the huffy bread man's friend, but because of his importunity, he finally had his request met. And not only did he get his three loaves, but he got exceeding abundantly above all that he could have thought or asked. It says that he gave him as many loaves as he needed. So don't, whatever you do, don't. And and by the way, persistence is different than vain repetition. Now, there are some people in some religions who will think that they're being persistent if they say the same prayer over and over and over again. I mean, that's like the prophets of Baal. They said the same thing. That's not persistence in prayer. That's vain repetition. Like, oh, hail Mary, da-da-da-da-da. That's just vain repetition. It doesn't, it doesn't get anywhere with God. He wants prayers, persistent prayers that come from the heart. Okay. Well, don't let the secret thought come over your mind that there is no longer any use in praying when you haven't had an answer to a prayer. Maybe you've been praying for 24 years about something. I prayed 24 years that my father would accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think he did. But um, just, I don't know what he might have done in those last minutes. I don't know. Maybe he did. I'll find out when I get to heaven. But, you know, we have that tendency for that secret thought to come into our hearts. Well, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm just going to give up on this. Don't do that. Those who are going to be mighty in prayer are those who will be persistent in prayer. Now, the huffy bread man in this parable who finally did respond because of the intercessory man's importunity is not how God responds to you and I. God doesn't finally, you know, okay, he's just driving me crazy. God doesn't finally get up and wake up those who are sleeping and unlock shut doors and then give us the bread simply because we're making such a nuisance of ourselves pounding on his door. Jesus was using this parable as a contrast. He was arguing from the lesser to the greater. He was saying that if a sleepy, grouchy, huffy, reluctant human neighbor finally meets the needs of his persistent friend, how much more will a loving, never slumbers, never sleeps, never irritable, heavenly father meet the needs of his own dear children, those in the very house with him? He delights to generously meet the needs of those who persist in prayer. That's what he's teaching here. Well, the precept to the parable was given next by Jesus. So let's look at it, and it's in verses 9 to 13, where he says, And I say unto you, and we've discussed this also before in the Sermon on the Mount, but he says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Two basic things, quick things I want to point out about these two verses. And if you miss them, you can go back and study lesson number 48 in our Life of Christ study. It was called the prayer rule. But first of all, I want to point out that the verb tenses which are given in the Greek of ask, seek, and knock are given in the continuous tense. So that literally it says keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. And you all know how to memorize that, right? Ask, seek, and knock. A, 
ask, seek, s, knock, k, they spell a-s-k, ask. All right, that's how I remember the order, and I messed it up once earlier this morning, but it's a-s-k, ask. So basically, we're told here, pray without ceasing. Keep on, all the time, praying. And this is how you receive. This is how you find. And this is how you have doors open to you, by being persistent in prayer. Second point is that Jesus, again, was arguing from the lesser to the greater in verses um, 11 to 13. Well, I didn't read that. I was supposed to read that. Let me go all the way to 13. All right, back up. Let's go back to verse 10. For everyone that asketh receiveth. No, I did read that. Verse 11. If a, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he, the father, give him a stone? Or if he ask, if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? That would be awful, wouldn't it? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? All right, second point. Should have read those verses to begin with, but that, again, Jesus is arguing from the um, lesser to the greater. If an earthly father with a sin nature gives what is best for his children, you know, he doesn't give him a stone if the little boy asks for bread. That would be a cruel father. We have some cruel fathers out there in the world, don't we? But uh, let's just take a, a you know regular loving father, and yet he has the sin nature. He's not going to give his little boy a stone if he wants bread, and he's not going to give, we hope he isn't going to give him a scorpion if the boy wants to eat some fish. Or, what was it? Egg. If he wants some egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion. And he's not going to give him a serpent if he asks for a fish. Ugh, awful. Um... So if, if that's the case with an earthly father, surely the heavenly father will do far, far more for his children. Doesn't God know how to give good gifts to his children? Of course he does. And what is the best gift that he gives to his children? Salvation. He gives us the Holy Spirit. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that. Let's move on to verses 14 to 26. Okay, starting verse 14. And he was casting, we jump here to a different scene. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. All devils are dumb. (laughs) And actually, it means that the man who had the devil was dumb. He couldn't speak. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake. And the people wondered. They were, of course, amazed. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts said unto them, every kingdom, this is called the parable of the divided kingdom, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges." But if I, with the finger of God, I love that, cast out devils. You know how easy it is for Jesus to cast out a devil? Just with this finger. The finger of God, cast out devils. No doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I have such power, you better believe the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. All right, now we begin the parable of the strong man. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. 
But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out. Now this is another parable. This is the parable of the empty house. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Okay, the 31st recorded miracle in our Life of Christ study is yet another healing of a dumb demoniac. This passage in Luke 11, go back to verse 14 is what I'm talking about, gives us now, the uh, he healed this dumb demoniac, and now we have, for the third recorded time in our study, the Lord being accused of being in league with who? Satan, Beelzebub. Beelzebub was... Um, the Lord of the Flies. It was uh, another name for Satan, essentially. All right, so for the third time, or third recorded time, he's accused of being in league with Satan, although this is the first time that he is accused of this by just common people. The other times he was accused by the Pharisees. Now it just these are just regular people saying this. And then uh, other people in the crowd, some of them accused him of being in league with Beelzebub, and others, it says in verse 16, tempted him. Uh, to do some kind of a great miracle in the sky, which they were implying would, if he did that, you know, made seven rainbows in the sky or whatever they wanted him to do up there, that that would then give them proof positive that he was actually casting out demons in God's power and not in Satan's power. Now, and that's kind of ridiculous if you think about it, because who's the prince of the power of the air? If he could do that, maybe it was through Satan's power because he has power in, in, you know, the atmospheric air. Anyway, the Lord then gave three excellent, very logical arguments that totally refuted their accusation. Now, two of these arguments we studied, we studied all of these back in lesson number 56, those of you who weren't with us, and so I'm going to just go over very quickly here. But they, two of these arguments were given by way of parables. The parable of the divided kingdom in verses 17 to 20, which essentially was saying that Satan would not fight against himself and thereby divide his own kingdom. Satan isn't going to cast out his own demons from people because then he would have a divided house. He's not going to do that. That's the parable of the divided kingdom. Then the the parable of subduing the strong man, which he gives to us in verses 21 to 23, essentially says that no one can defeat Satan unless he's stronger than Satan. That's all that's basically saying, is you can't defeat Satan unless you're stronger than Satan. Just like, you know, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Of course, Christ is stronger than Satan. He's the one who casts Satan from heaven. All right, well, then his third argument against their accusation that he was doing his works in the power of Satan had to do with their own sons or their own fellow Jews. There were Jews who, on occasion, also went around and exercised demons out of people. And you know what the Jewish people did when they saw that happen? They praised them 
for doing so. So this was, of course, very inconsistent. They, they praise their own religious leaders or some Jewish person who could cast out a demon. But when Jesus does it, they don't praise him. They accuse him of um, being in league with Satan. And then they ask him to perform some kind of a sign in the sky. Why didn't they ask their own people who could exercise demons to perform miracles in the sky? You see how inconsistent they were? All right, that's what he's showing them. And then he illustrated the danger of neutrality toward him. When he said in verse 23, he that is not with me is against me. And he did so, you know, you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus, can you? You can't just say, well, I'm not going to make up my mind because we're all born on the road that leads to destruction. So you have to choose for him. You cannot remain neutral about it. All right, he illustrates this with another parable, and this we find in verses 43 to 45. It's called the parable of the empty house. In this parable, Jesus was really describing the spiritual condition of Israel. By the time of Christ, the nation of Israel was spiritually unclean. Now, when John the Baptist had come and he had preached repentance... Much of Israel had responded positively to his message by confessing their sins. Many people who heard John, the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way before the Messiah, many people placed their hope in his message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. In other words, they understood that the Messiah was soon to appear, and they anticipated his arrival. They got ready for him by sweeping their houses clean. They confessed their sins. And they, so John the Baptist was, you know, he was the sweeper, we could say. He prepared the way, sweeping the path before the king. And so under John the Baptist, Israel was swept clean. But the problem was that when the Messiah came, the nation rejected him, right? She didn't invite him in to her cleaned-up house, She swept the house clean, but when he came, she didn't say, come on in, to dwell with her. And then when, of course, when Israel finalized her decision and crucified the Messiah, what happened? Her spiritual condition was seven times worse than before John the Baptist had begun his ministry. After she crucified her Messiah, she was in seven times worse condition than before Jesus came. So this powerful parable was a serious warning to Israel of the impending danger that lay before her. We just can't stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. You know, a lot of people try to do that. They try to, on their own, they try to clean up their, their lives, don't they? But that doesn't work. You can't, without the power of God, the Holy Spirit, you can't clean up, you can't sweep clean your own heart. Uh, You either have to invite Jesus in or you're going to get something else in there. And it'll be seven times worse off. Okay, so it was at this point then that uh, a certain woman, there's that word certain again, we see this in verse 27, a certain woman of the company spoke up. Now, I don't know who this woman was. I don't know if she was one of his female disciples who followed around with the Lord. Um, 
or, or if she was a woman in the crowd of people to whom he had just been speaking. But anyway, let's look at what this woman had to say and the Lord's response to her. And again, this is the, the only place we have this little incident recorded for us is in Luke's gospel. So let's look at what Luke tells us about it. Verse 27 and 28. And it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. And he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That's a beatitude right there. Circle that. All right. This certain woman, whoever she was, uh, was all caught up in the miracle that the Lord had performed in healing the dumb demoniac, and she was all caught up in the teaching that she had just heard from him. And... um, And she exclaimed out loud that the woman who had given birth to and nursed one such as Jesus was surely a blessed woman. And that's true. But what did Jesus say in response to this certain woman's exclamation? Well, first of all, notice he didn't rebuke the woman. He didn't deny that his mother was blessed for having given birth to him. But he did say that there is a greater blessing than even what Mary had in giving birth to the Messiah. And what is that greater blessing? Blessed is the, are they that hear the word of God and keep it. We're hearing the word of God this morning. If we go out of here and we keep it, we're more blessed than Mary. Isn't that amazing to think about? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been the one to give birth to (laughs) the Messiah? That would have been a great privilege, but we're even more privileged. That's amazing. So Jesus was directing this certain woman's thoughts to an even higher and a greater truth. The one who is really, really, really blessed is the one who hears God's word and obeys it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would not have been blessed at all herself, even though having given birth to Jesus, she would not have been blessed if she had not heard and kept the word of God. Did you know that? She had a great privilege, but she she had to be saved herself. So this was really very similar to what the Lord Jesus had said back in Matthew 12. In verses 46 to 50, after his, uh, he was in Capernaum, and he was probably in Peter's house, and some people came and knocked on his door and said, Hey, did you know your mother is here, and your brothers and your sisters are here? They're out here, to, you know, outside to see you. And, you know, and what did he do? He pointed to his disciples who were there in the house, to the twelve, and he said, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that it is the spiritual relationship with him that is important from eternity's standpoint, not the physical. Right? It's the spiritual relationship that's important. All right, now in the next section of Luke 11... How many minutes have I got? Oh, my. In verses 29 to 32, uh, and we have discussed these words spoken by the Lord Jesus previously again, back in Lesson 56, the misunderstood Messiah. Um, Let's read those and um, then talk about them a minute. Verses 29 to 32, is that what I said? Yes. Okay. And when the people were gathered thick together... 
he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. But for as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south, we know her as the queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. There he's claiming twice to be greater than Solomon, who was said to be the wisest man in the world. And he's greater than Jonas, who had the greatest revival ever preached. Even though he was a reluctant preacher, he had the greatest revival ever, didn't he? All right, essentially what he's saying is that Israel was evil for seeking more and more and more evidence and proof of his messiahship when she already had more than ample evidence, didn't she? Don't you have to admit she had an awful lot of evidence, far more than the Queen of Sheba or the Ninevites ever had. What greater sign could God give than to reveal himself personally to man through his own son? I mean, and and Jesus had fulfilled all of the first coming messianic prophecies that They could just read them and see that he fulfilled them. And his miracles more than proved the truth of his claims. There would be only one more sign given corporately to the nation of Israel. And what would that sign be? The sign of Jonas, which would be the sign of the resurrection. As Jonas was three nights, three days in the belly of the whale, so would he be. Uh, And he would resurrect on the third day. In the day of judgment, he says, in the day of judgment, the Gentile queen of Sheba, who traveled a long distance and went through many hardships in order to hear the wisdom of King Solomon, and on the day of judgment, the Gentile people of Nineveh, who repented after hearing the preaching of Jonah, those will... those. The people of Nineveh and the queen will stand as a testimony against the generation of Israel, which was privileged to have a greater than Solomon among them and a greater, far greater than Jonah, the reluctant prophet among them. And yet they did not listen to his wisdom, nor did they listen to his preaching. And then the Lord ended this part of his teaching with a call to Israel to hearken to his word, which again he he um, likened to light. So let's look at those very quickly, verses 33 to 36. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Jesus had just brought to the nation the light of the knowledge of God. And he revealed that truth openly, didn't he? I mean, he didn't go around teaching in secret places and in dark rooms 
Where did he teach? Uh, he'd go. He'd go out in the public and teach. He'd go straight into the uh, synagogues and teach. He'd go right to the temple and teach. Everything he did, he revealed openly. Uh, all he did, he did out in the open. Light should be placed where it can be seen and not under a bushel, right? Same thing is true with you and I. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. We're to be out there so people can see the light and be drawn to, to our Lord. Yet Israel's willful blindness to the light caused her to reject his truth. And that rejection was not because there was any flaw in the light. Your whole body will be full of light. But when your eyes open, your body will be full of darkness. And I don't have time to develop that, so I hope you will read more about it in your notes. And by the way, the reason I went so quickly over Jonah and the Queen of Sheba is because I think we've talked about this at least on two other occasions. So again, you can look up other past lessons. But there's a lot more about this whole subject here of the light, and I think we'll get back to it in another lesson, but study it more on your own because I want to get real quickly into the second part of our outline. And for that, let's look at, this is where, where I got the title, The Six Woes. Let's look at verses 37 to 44. In, in this next, the, the last part of Luke 11, Jesus pronounces six woes of denunciation. Three of them are against Pharisees, and three of them are against lawyers. So let's begin by looking at the ones he pronounces against the Pharisees. And for that, we look at verses 37 to 44. It says, and as he spake, a certain, there we go again, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. Now, this is not the same Pharisee named Simon the Pharisee that we read about back in Luke 7. It's a different Pharisee, all right? He besought him to dine with him, and he, Jesus, went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner got this Pharisee all uptight that Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate. (laughs) And verse 39, And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Wow. Calls them hypocrites and calls them fools. Pretty strong language here. All right. A certain Pharisee had probably been in the audience of Jesus and had invited him to his house to eat. However, I do not think that this Pharisee's motive was pure and that he was really interested in Jesus' teaching. And I base this primarily on the way that Jesus talked to the man. And he knew the man's heart, didn't he? Of course he did. He knew what the man was thinking. I don't think the man verbalized that he was upset that Jesus didn't wash his hands, but Jesus could read his heart. And uh, Jesus doesn't call people fools unless they're unsaved. He never calls a saved person a fool. Does he? He doesn't. 
He called them fools. Not only this Pharisee, but he had other people over for dinner, and we find out that there were other Pharisees and scribes there at this meal. He calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites. He goes on to call them murderers and thieves. So I judge from that that this man's motive was not very good. And I also judge it on the way that this chapter closes out. Look with me real quickly at the last two verses, 53 and 54. It says, after he says all these woes to them, it says, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began, began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. Why? Because they wanted to hear him teach some more? No. Laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. The whole purpose for this Pharisee, along with a bunch of his buddies, other Pharisees and scribes, in inviting Jesus to dinner was so that they could trip him. They're always trying to get him, aren't they? Always out to get him. Well, after his bold indictment of them... uh, No, I already said that. Okay, so, so this invitation to dine was a trap, and Jesus knew it. Perhaps this is even why, I think it's why, when he sat down to eat, he purposely did not wash his hands first. He knew that this would get them because they had this elaborate, oh, I think I've told you about it before, elaborate hand-washing ceremony that they went through before they ate any meal and even between their courses. What they would do is they had an egg egg and a half eggshell and a half worth of water. And they would take that water and they'd start with their uh, hand up up like this. They take one hand, pour the egg and a half shells worth of water on one hand and let the water drip down to the elbow, only to the elbow, get that hand. And then with their knuckle of their other hand, they'd take it and go all like this. All right, then they'd repeat it with the other hand. And then they'd get, they had to keep going back to the water and then get another, and then they'd have to hold their arms this way and drop the, the water down from the elbow down to the fingers and do the same process. I mean, can you imagine all of that before you ate? And then between courses, you had to do it all over again. Well, Jesus just went in, sat down, and started eating. <laughs> and I think, he, I think he purposely did this. I mean, this was, and to them, oh my goodness, this was a serious violation of their religious law about ceremonial purity. And then, of course, he could read their minds and see their horrified looks on their faces. And so he, this launched him into his condemnation. He told them, in effect, that they were foolish fanatics about the externals while they neglected the far more important matters of the heart, the internal matters of the heart. They treated their relationship with God like a person washing dishes who only would focus on getting the outside of the cup and the platter sparkling clean. How would you like to come to my house and all my cups and glasses sitting on the shelves look sparkling clean and then you take one down to go get a cup of water and you look inside and it's absolutely filthy. Well, you sure wouldn't categorize me as a Martha, would you? <laughs> but that's what he said. They were, they were focusing on the, the outside being spick and span. While inside, he said they were full of ravening, which means full of extortion and plundering and seizing. And they were full of wickedness. The Jews of that day, you see, when I say the Jews, I mean the religious rulers, had, uh, they plundered the way of God. They seized the way of God from the people. They, they were trying to seize his kingdom their way instead of 
following God's way. They tried to come to God by way of their own works of righteousness, trying to make themselves all clean on the outside while their hearts were actually plotting murder against God's own son. And again, we did talk about this subject in, de- in detail back in a lesson called Dirty Hands or Dirty Hearts. It was lesson number 72. So if you missed that, you can, if you missed all these things, you got a lot of reading to do this week. All right. Well, the first woe was that Jesus then, that he then pronounced against the Pharisees had to do with their wrong priorities. They were scrupulous about tithing, you know, giving a tenth to the Lord. But they absolutely went overboard with this. They even tithed uh, the herbs of their gardens. You know, they take one-tenth of their herbs and take it to the temple. And they would take one-tenth of their wives' little potted plants on their kitchen windowsills and they'd take it to the temple. I mean, they were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors because they were certainly neglecting the far more important matters such as justice to their fellow man and love of God. Well, that's in an, in an eggshell, I should say. That's the first woe. Then the second woe against the Pharisees in verse 43 had to do with pride, of course, had to do with their self-centered craving for prominence and honor. What seats in the house did they have to have? And when they went to the synagogue or the opera, <laughs> they had to have the best seats in the house. In the synagogue, they actually had to have the seats that were up in front, well, kind of like this, facing the congregation. They would sit in the front and they'd face the congregation. And they loved it. They loved being up on the platform. They loved the attention and the praise of men that they received when they were out in the marketplace. You know, people would see them coming with their phylacteries on their forehead and their bells on the bottom of their robes, and, and people would get out of their way and they'd look at them with awe and reverence and call them rabbi, and they, they just ate it up. They loved it. You see, they placed more importance on their reputations than on their character. They cared more about their rep- reputation, which is what you appear to be before men than their character. What's character? What God knows you are. Well, the third row, uh, third row, talking about seats and rows, the third woe found in verse 44 must have really angered his host and the other guests because now Jesus spoke to both the scribes and the Pharisees. The first two woes were only like addressed to the Pharisees and now he includes the scribes. And what does he call them? Verse 44. Hypocrites. He's already called them fools, and now he throws in the word hypocrites. He says, oh, this angered them. He said they were like unmarked graves that people couldn't see and therefore walked over. Are you like that? If you go to a cemetery, I don't like to walk across a grave. I mean, I don't know. It's just sort of a thing. I think it shows a little bit of disrespect. But um, sometimes you have to, you know. And, but they were, they were fanatical about it. They, they said that if you walked over a place where somebody was buried, you were defiled. You became ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't, couldn't, couldn't go to the temple or the synagogue. You couldn't socialize with people for seven days. That's back in uh, Numbers 19, 11 to 22, but they, of course, as always, they reinterpreted it and exaggerated. And I thought, you know, this is probably why the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan parable passed by the man who was laying there beaten and robbed because they either thought he was dead and they'd have to defile themselves or maybe they thought if they went over to help him and he did die, they'd still be defiled because then they'd have to deal with him with a dead body. 
But because of this obsession with not touching the dead, they made sure that all their graves were very well marked. In fact, they would go out once a year and they would whitewash all the graves, the, 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 the tombstones so that you could easily see them and that you wouldn't accidentally step on the ground where a body had been buried underneath. However, some of the graves, the ancient graves especially, were not marked, and therefore unknowingly Jews would walk over them and defile themselves. And you know, I got to thinking, Israel is such a small country, probably everywhere they walked there was somebody buried under there a dead sparrow or a dead something so I mean you'd have to float around in the air just think I mean we're probably right now on top of uh, some Indian tribe that lived here a long time ago you know the the earth has been around for a while there's a lot of dead things under the the ground not everything is marked with the grave but anyway um, Jesus was saying here that the scribes and Pharisees contaminated and defiled the people who came into contact contact with them. They were like unmarked graves. Now, they might not look like graves on the outside, but they were vaults of decay and dead men's bones on the inside. Because their hearts, their hearts were filthy. You know, on the outside, they might have smelled like mint and rue. Do you know what rue is? I had to ask my husband, verse 42, where it says rue. Does anybody know what rue is? It was like an evergreen that uh, they thought was medicinal. He found that out. He looked it up in the dictionary because I I didn't know. But anyway, they might have smelled like mint and evergreen on the outside, but inside they smelled like rotten, decaying bones, dead bodies, awful. So it's at this point that one of the lawyers spoke up. Before this last woe, he'd been kind of silent. He hadn't said anything because the Lord was only, uh, the Lord was only uh, speaking out against the Pharisees. But when the Lord said scribes and Pharisees, he sat up and he said, uh, you know, Lord, where is it? Let's see. Uh, master, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also? Huh? You're including us, the students of the law, in your reproach here? Well, let's read that. Verses 45 to 52. It says, Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also? And he said. Now here's the three woes to the lawyers. Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation." From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. Here are three woes. I call them uh, the woe of burdens, the woe of blood, and the woe of burglars. His first denouncement, woe, 
was for teaching others to do what they themselves didn't practice. They were experts, we've talked about this many times, at adding to what was called the scribal law, which was all kinds of their own man-made rules and regulations that they often placed even higher than the word of God. They managed to take the Mosaic law and codify it into 365 prohibitions. You know what that is? One for every day of the year. 365 do-nots. Do not do this, do not do that. 365 of them. And 248 commandments, which are 248 do's. you imagine just trying to keep that straight in your mind? All these do-nots and do's. And notice there's more do-nots than do's. As if the people weren't already feeling the weight of their guilt in not even being able to obey the Ten Commandments, these scribes loaded them down with an unbearable burden which they did not even lift a finger to help them carry. In fact, they themselves devised all kinds of loopholes so that they could get out of obeying their own rules and regulations, and yet they expected the people to obey them all. Now, I'm going to give you just a few examples. These are absolutely crazy. But, um, you know, on the Sabbath, they said that on the Sabbath, you could not walk more than 2,000 cubits from your home, which is 1,000 yards. So you couldn't walk more than 1,000 yards from your house on the Sabbath. However, what they would do, they would go out before the sun went down on Friday night, before the Sabbath began, and they would take a rope and they would tie it from a part of their house at the rope, tie it to the house, and then they extend that rope as far as a thousand yards, and then they would tie, well, depending on where they wanted to go on the Sabbath, if they wanted to go even further than that, they'd tie another rope to that rope, and they'd keep going, and they, what they said then is that the rope was an extension of their house. So on the Sabbath, they could go further than a thousand um, Yards. Oh, I know what they'd do. They'd take the rope and they'd begin a thousand yards from their house and they'd say that was an extension. Of, no, they had to attach it to the house. I'm talking to myself. Anyway, you see what they did. They had this loophole so they could walk even further on the Sabbath than the rest of the people. Now, here's a really crazy one. If they needed to get uh, raise a bucket of water from a well, um, they couldn't use a rope because they weren't allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath. They couldn't tie any kinds of knots on the Sabbath. So that's why they had to tie the ropes on the night before the Sabbath. But on the Sabbath, you couldn't tie a knot because that was considered work. However, they did say it was allowed for a woman to tie a knot in her girdle. I don't know where they came up with that. And I thought about, I, I don't know how I'd tie a knot in my girdles. They must have had different different types of girdles in those things. But a woman could, on the Sabbath, she could tie a knot in her girl. So if they needed to go and get a, a bucket of water out of the well, they could borrow their wives' girdles and use the girdle to tie to the bucket to pull out of the well. Isn't that crazy? Now, here's another one. They weren't allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath. I don't know. It was a certain weight. They could only carry something really tiny on the Sabbath. Uh, and they weren't allowed to carry anything in their right hand or in their left hand or in their bosom or on their shoulder. If they carried anything that way, they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. But here, this is a direct quote. It says this, quote, But he who carries anything on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow 
or with his ear, or with his hair, (laughs) or with his money bag turned upside down, or between his money bag and his shirt, or in the fold of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal, is guiltless. So if you carry it down <laughs> on your hair and your elbows, and you were okay, you go around. Absolutely crazy. <coughs> anyway, we have people just as crazy today, I'll tell you, in some of these religions. All right, then in verses 47 to 51, he spoke, I'm almost through, his second woe indictment against the lawyers was that they honored the prophets as long as the prophets were dead. They honored the prophets uh, by building elaborate tombs and renovating those tombs and adorning them and looking after all the old relics of the prophets, etc., etc. And by, by doing all this, they were saying, in effect, that they approved of these prophets. You know, they were adorning them and say, oh, we approve of their teaching. And yet, the prophets all spoke of righteousness and how to be righteous. And they all spoke of who? The coming Christ, the Messiah. So in rejecting Christ, they were really identifying themselves with those who had murdered many of the prophets. Do you know the Jews murdered many of their own prophets? They didn't like their prophets. It's amazing. They always um, honor someone after they're dead, don't they? They hate him like... John the Baptist, they weren't real crazy about John the Baptist, but after he was dead, you know, they made a great man out of him. The scribes were good at embalming the past and honoring the martyred prophets killed by the very religious establishment of which they were a part. For example, they could have prevented the murder of John the Baptist. They could have protested. They could have um, sieged against Herod's dungeon there and demanded that he be released or they'd have an uprising and Herod would get in trouble with Caesar. They could have done that. But really, truth of the matter is they wanted John the Baptist out of the way. They didn't really care for him, the religious rulers. Same thing with Christ. Uh, they, They would soon see to it that he was put to death by the Romans. And it says in verse 45, they would also be responsible for the persecution and death of many of the apostles and and New Testament prophets. Well, last of all, in verse 52, which is his third woe judgment to the lawyers, Jesus condemned them for robbing the people of the key of knowledge. The lawyers were the students of the scripture, and the people depended on them for instruction and personal application from God's word, but they they had so reinterpreted the key of knowledge, the word of God, And they had so added to it and so subtracted from it, as we just saw some ridiculous examples, that they actually hid the truth. They did not reveal the true God to the people, nor did they reveal to the people that the demands that his holiness makes on those who want to be saved. They made, really, they made a personal knowledge, a personal salvation with God virtually impossible especially when they rejected and killed the one who had come to reveal God and to tell the people the way of salvation. You know, it was one thing that these men themselves weren't entering into the kingdom, but of course it was far worse that they were preventing others from doing so. So they had stolen from the, they were burglars. They had stolen from the people the key of knowledge. Well, as we saw already, none of this went over very well at all with the Lord's uh, listeners and... um, they, they were upset, they were vehement, they tried to provoke him, they were trying to catch him some, with something else that he would say so that they could accuse him. So it's very evident by now in our study of Christ's life 
that they did not have ears to hear what he was trying to say to them. You see, he was saying all this to them in love because they, didn't, they couldn't be cured by the great physician until they knew how sick they were. But they would not acknowledge that they were sick. They didn't have spiritual ears to hear. It's evident by now. And one more thing is very crystal clear. Jesus is not going to back down, is he? There's no fear of man in him whatsoever. And he certainly isn't trying to save his own neck. He's simply concerned about speaking the truth. Bold, but in love. It was all done in love.